Hello, everyone, and welcome to the IDSI Views podcast. I'm Gaia Lamperti, and today I'm joined by Gareth Reese, Chief Platform Officer at Bottomline. Hi, Gareth. How are you? I'm good, Gareth. Thank you so much for joining us. Gareth, I would like to start by asking you what has changed in the payments industry since the pandemic, and how are we going to see it soar as we slowly go back to a new normal? Wow. Um, yeah, really, really good question. Well, I think there's a few things. So the payments industry, as we headed into the pandemic, was undergoing probably more changes than have happened in the last 15, 20 years and changes happening at a, an increasing velocity as well. I think what the pandemic did was um, really put the afterburners on some of those. So I think a few things happened. Obviously, people were starting to work remotely. So the idea of you know physical payments and signatures, whether that's on checks or not, or, or whatnot, obviously went away. You know, if you just think on the consumer side, contactless, moving to a situation where you didn't want to be handing cards to each other, necessitated the move towards more and more contactless and, and near field communication type payments. So I think overall, if I were to kind of paint the picture, I'd say a really rapid adoption or move towards more digital payment types. We did a payments barometer briefing and we had um, the uh, Federation of Small Business on. And what they were talking about was the small businesses who actually did well or relatively well and survived the pandemic were those who could pivot their business model. So if you were a, a pizza shop or something like that, you suddenly had to be able to pivot to delivery, which meant you needed to be able to take payments remotely or through an online channel, which is something they perhaps had never done before and they'd relied more on pure card or, or cash payments. So I think if I were to kind of summarize it, I would say a, a much a more rapid advance towards modern digital forms of payment and more remote forms of payment which kind of linked to another sort of underlying trend, which had been picking up pace, but had not really, really sped up, which is real-time payments. So as you move towards digital payments, you know, a subset or a driving force to those was real-time payments. And we definitely saw an uplift in the volume of, of real-time payments across the globe, but um, particularly in the UK as well. Um, and I think whilst those trends, that trend line may flatten out a little bit, I don't think we'll see those reverse. I think that kind of move towards more digital payments, more real more real time payments will continue. Brilliant. Thank you. How is innovation in the sector playing a key role in the economic recovery for merchants and consumers alike? Um, well, I think it's become really, really important. So I, I look at, um, you know, what drove things like the move towards real-time payments or, for example, the open banking movement, particularly in the UK and in Europe. And it was about breaking down those old silos, breaking down those, particularly in payments, ways of working and giving far more choice which I think we're starting to see. So there's um, an enormous amount of new payment types for merchants to use, but also small businesses to start start using as well. And they link together. So if you're going to use open banking, if you're going to use an open banking payment, so you're going to initiate a, initiate a payment through your bank versus maybe using a card, well, clearly one of the benefits of that has got to be that it's nearer to real time. And I think the other piece that's happening there is the length of settlement as well. So if you're in a card settlement mode, whilst you may be able to take the payment over the counter or whatnot, you still have to wait X number of days for settlement. Well, in a in a real-time payments and open banking world, that's pretty much the same day. So suddenly the liquidity of those smaller businesses, but I think all businesses, starts to become closer to real time. So now you're um now you're managing your cash much closer to actually how your payment cycle works. So I think those are those are fairly big trends. That that are happening that real-time payments underpins underpins that side of it. You can't do some of the things that people are trying to do. So if you look at the sites now that are offering pay by bank 
as an option as opposed to card. That only really works if it's linked to some sort of real-time payments settlement mechanism for a variety of reasons, including risk and fraud and whatnot. So I look at real-time payments, whereas before it was a technical thing the payments industry cared about. I think now it's becoming part of the customer experience and part of the demand, whether it's a consumer or whether it's a business, that demand for the real-time payments and then latterly real-time data as well. And with all the benefits of it also came risks and financial crime, which has spiked during the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the industry reacted to this threat and in particular, how is bottom line putting in place some new measure to better tackle cybercrime in the payments landscape? Well, I think whenever you see a change in, in a particular payments landscape or a financial technology landscape, but in the world of payments, whenever there's a new change, a new thing, it's kind of fraud, fraud, fraud flock to it. So when you know checks came out, people were kiting checks, and it moved to card, and people were uh, cloning cards, um, and now we've got to these more real time or these open banking transactions, and you see the rise of things like authorized push payment fraud and so on. So I think whenever that new frontier opens, there's this uh, period when the forces flood in, and then there's your second part of your question is, well, how does the industry react to that? Um, I have to say, I think the industry's reacted pretty well to it. Not perfect, and there's a lot more for us all to do. But um, in terms of timing, have moved reasonably quickly to put in place things such as confirmation of payee is obviously a mechanism to really help with that, that kind of push payment fraud um, piece. I think um, from a general industry perspective, we need to tighten up that framework. We need to push a little bit faster and a little bit harder. Obviously, they mandate those changes with the CMA nine banks or the larger banks, but leave other banks to kind of decide how they want to make it up. So there was a recent, there was actually a recent one where it was a, it was a new modern neo bank was used to, to to facilitate APP fraud. So I think if we're going to do it, we can't leave half the castle gates open. We need to actually mandate more of these changes across industry. From bottom line's perspective, we've um, we've launched our own solution or our solutions as part of confirmation of payee, um, as well as looking at how we strengthen up some of the uh, some of the security and the fraud prevention capabilities around AP payments and around open banking payments and other pieces. So I think the technology is there. What we need is the framework and to drive a faster adoption, even with confirmation of payee. That technology was available actually a little bit a little while ago but there was a lot of kind of stop starting in the industry about do we mandate the banks to do it do we not and and i know there's a lot already put on the banks but if we're going to go through this digital transformation we need to make sure that the laws and regulations kind of stay pace with it and that we able that we're able to address those risks risk vectors really quickly when they come up absolutely and as we talk about industry-wide challenges and new frameworks let's dive deep into iso 20 or 22 what will change how can financial services prepare for these new guidelines that's an interesting one so that's again that's a, one of those topics that probably you have to be in the payments industry to even know what it means or be interested in it but it's actually got a really big impact and it links so these topics all link together. Um, you know, if you're going to move towards more of an open banking world, if you're moving to more of this interconnected world, if you're moving to more real-time payments, if you're moving towards the fact where payments kind of disappear inside the process. So an obvious example that I, people use all the time, but it still bears, is Uber. You know, it's a payment, but you never really make a payment for using the car. It's sort of just built into that experience. I think that's happening across the board in lots and lots of different ways now. If you're going to do that, what becomes really important is less the payment specifically itself, but also all the data and information around that. And if you want to move things in a real-time fashion, if you want to get things all close to real-time fashion, and you want to get things to move the same way internationally as they do domestically, 
we need to have that all of the counterparties who work that way, the banks, the market infrastructures have a common standard that they work to. And that's what ISO 2022, I think, brings to us. So it's not, it's not just a, it's not just something for us payment geeks to get um, interested in. It's actually a, a fundamental building block for how you build a new digital um, and real-time economy because it gets people to a standard, which I think is really important. And increasingly, I've seen that this ISO standard is truly being driven as a standard as opposed to perhaps the multiplicity we've had in the past. But also the second piece is this, the expanded amount of information that can go with it, I think is going to become critically important. Because if you imagine, you think about card payments, there's actually quite a lot of data that can come with a card payment. So if you want to have an alternative to that, you need to have a payment mechanism. You need to have a way of a payment messaging that actually allows for that data to flow as well. And I think ISO is going to be critically important for that, which goes to your second question, I guess, which is what does that mean to banks? Um, well, first and foremost, it means obviously a lot of work for them because their systems are typically not designed to work around ISO. They've worked around various other formats that have been there, domestic and otherwise. So there's there's heavy lifting for them. And I think as a, as a financial technology industry, which is where bottom line is, we have to be aware and responsible to help them navigate through that. But on the other side of it, there's also huge opportunity. So I can't, you know, whilst there's all new fintechs entering the market, I don't think you can imagine or foresee a future where the banks aren't a major part of making this transformation happen. And I think for the banks as well, being they've always been able to sort of hang their laurels on with a payments entity, with a, with a kind of regulated payments entity. That's our that's our protective moat. Well, that protective moat's gone now with you know open banking and PSD2. They still are, I think, a, a massively trusted entity though. So being able to be trusted with the customer data and the customer identity. And I think ISO really plays a big part in that. So the more data, I guess, that's available to banks, the more they can continue to play a significant role in the um, in the ecosystem. Um, and I think we need them we need them to be able to do that. So there's the investment, but there's also the opportunity. Great. And while replying to this question, you made a great point about how collaboration uh, is becoming critical to, to navigate the new shifts and challenging we're seeing in the sector. And the build versus buy is becoming the main debate in, in the space. Would you tell us why Bottom Line believes that partnering up is the right choice to implement a series of solutions and also to drive innovation within the landscape? Sure. Um, this, is a, this is an interesting one that I've been sort of tackling a little bit over the years. You know, how do you innovate if you're a bank? I think banks are actually already pretty innovative, frankly. What they've had to do now, though, is there's so much change so quickly, both regulatory change, but also just expectations. So we mentioned earlier on with the pandemic and the consumerization of technology. Well, that just drives expectations. And banks, are, you know, they've got a lot to catch up on around those pieces. So I think the smart banks are saying, let's find the right partners to work with. Let's decide what we need to own. Um, and let's decide what we need to pull together. And I think they're looking at themselves and they're seeing how, you know, we've used Uber as an example. The Uber app is built as a mashup of a series of different pieces of technology, whether it's Google Maps, whether it's Braintree for payments. So they didn't try and do everything from the ground up, which is traditionally where a bank might have been. So I think banks have realized pretty quickly that um, as a regulated entity, they've got value. They don't necessarily need to be the soup to nuts technology provider. They can be the value orchestrator that sits around that, which then means they need to find partners who um, know how to work with the bank because that is that is an art unto itself, um, who share the same values. Um, I think increasingly with open banking and the new regulations around whether you're a PISP, ISP, there's increasingly players, which is why bottom lines invested in becoming one, that 
we understand what it's like to be a regulated entity. So it's a really natural partnership with the bank that we can bring the innovation of a financial technology player, but also as a regular as a regulated player, we understand how to do that responsibly. And I think that's the balance that banks are always trying to find is they want to move with pace. They want to find really good partners to work with. They want to be to be seen and to be actually technically very innovative and really customer focused, but they also have to balance that with their their kind of responsibility, if you like, as a, as a trusted entity. And that's why I see them partnering. It's why from a bottom line perspective, we've invested heavily in how we partner with banks, but also in terms of getting the right regulations and the right compliance framework in place for us so that we can do that successfully. Interesting. Great. And to sort of wrap up our conversation, we did mention real-time payments. Are there any other main trends we would like to talk about in the payment segment that we can expect to grow in the next few years? And that bottom line is focusing on in particular. Um, yeah, so I think there's um so I think there's this interesting trend from open banking to open finance. Um, so that's that's the idea that it's not just going to be you know bank accounts. There'll be mortgages and loans and so on. So I think there's this there's this kind of secular trend towards this more integrated financial experience and into, and whether that's as a consumer and your more integrated financial lifestyle. Um, you have a daughter who's gone off to university who's got a modern one of the newer uh, digital bank accounts. It's all just integrated into how she shares money with her friends, and so her experience of banking is wildly different than, for example, mine. Mine would have been would have been growing up. So I think that trend is going to continue. But I think that trend is actually going to permeate into much broader parts of um, of industry. So increasingly, we're seeing now, even in business to business, those consumer trends are, are starting to take off. So when I think about open finance and open banking, I think about how that's going to affect things like the, the way that custom, uh, companies sorry, pay and get paid. So I think the old-fashioned kind of asynchronous, send an invoice, have a kind of an AP function over here, then have another function that they are functioning so over there. I think increasingly businesses are going to be starting to knit those things together and make their financial life a more seamless, mashed up life. And that they're going to be less of this kind of um, sort of arm's length relationship with banks when it comes to data. And it's going to be much more integrated to the world. So I think we're going to see, and I'm sure it'll be a little turbulent to start, I think we'll see more of those things coming together as those trends. But the sort of underpinning rails to that, if we go back to the start of our conversation, will be things like real-time payments, will be things like um, ISO as a structure, will be things like open banking. And that all has to sit inside of a regulatory and also a fraud prevention framework that makes people feel confident. I think if that happens and it, it looks like it is, then I think we'll see we'll see that as a major trend over the next five five to ten years in industry of that moving to a more. I look at it almost like the financial ERPs. It's you know ERPs pull all the operating stuff together. I think we're starting to see the kind of financial and payments and cash world start to pull together into a more integrated. Well, that was great. Thank you, Gareth. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. Beautiful. Thanks.